When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You knew you should have left earlier. And you told your friends this yesterday. You've started out from your flat in Clapham Common, and you feel like you've been all over London. Finally, you've got on the Jubilee line, and you're packed in like sardines. It's Saturday, July 13th, 1985, and everyone is probably heading to the same place in Northwest London, Wembley Stadium. At this point, it probably would have been quicker to walk. You tried to convince everyone to get an early move on, and they don't seem to know how badly you want to see that captivating band from Ireland called U2. But there are a ton of other bands that you can't believe are on one bill. You're not sure that your friends realize the scale of what you're about to witness, but it turns out neither do you, or most people for that matter, as the world is about to witness one of the biggest musical events in history. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consumed, and connected. And today, we look back on the musical charity event that captivated the entire globe. This is a story of Live Aid. they know it's Christmas? From that one question came one of the most extraordinary events of the 20th century. An event that ran for over 16 hours, included two countries, nearly 60 bands, and a gigantic global audience. But how did this all come together? What are the origins of this incredible event? Back in the early to mid-80s, Global awareness started to emerge about the extreme poverty and starvation in Ethiopia. At the same time, in the UK, this was a point of political, cultural, and economic unrest. With massive unemployment in the UK and the US and financial uncertainty, there were many experiencing a financial windfall at the same time, especially a new era of musical and pop artists. The 1980s was an interesting combination of inflation, poverty, and unemployment. But on the other end, rich yuppies, big cell phones, and even bigger shoulder pads. The 1980s was a dichotomy between want and excess. It felt like we were living in a lavish material world, and a lot of pop stars wanted to show this off. One British pop star who had been living a life of wealth and excess found themselves falling off a bit. And that was Bob Geldof. Geldof, 
the lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, had a few UK number one hits, including I Don't Like Mondays. But the good days seemed to be behind Geldof. He also wasn't necessarily in the good graces of many people. But then, one night, everything changed. Geldof found himself watching the 6 o'clock news, witnessing the strife of the famine-stricken Ethiopia. In the documentary Against All Odds, Geldof explains how he looked on in horror. He was living a cozy life and witnessed what was being described as hell on earth. Geldof wasn't the only one watching the news that night, and people across the UK began to donate money in the hope it would help what they were seeing. Geldof wanted to help too. Maybe he could use his skills as a musical artist. What about creating a song to raise money for Ethiopia? This led to the all-star song, Do They Know It's Christmas? Released in December 1984, the song featured big-time artists such as U2, Phil Collins, Duran Duran, Sting, George Michael, Boy George, and members of Bananarama, Spandau Ballet, and even Cool in the Gang. The supergroup would be dubbed Band-Aid. There was some natural cynicism that questioned how Geldof, sometimes perceived as a selfish rock star, could be behind such a charitable act. But the song was a gigantic hit, quickly hitting number one selling a million copies in a week, which made it the fastest-selling single in UK history. It also made eight million pounds for Africa, light years ahead of what they were even hoping. Convert that into American money and adjust it for inflation, and we're in the $30 million range here. This was an astonishing achievement. Music and pop stars could actually raise money for an important cause. And this was just one song. What else might be possible? The foundation for Live Aid was being set. But before that, people were concerned that the trust set up to distribute the Band-Aid money wasn't being used properly. The idea came about to get Geldof to Africa and possible photo ops. But Geldof was extremely concerned about any perceptions of milking the situation for his own celebrity. A reluctant Geldof made the trip to tour around Ethiopia, and he was shocked by what he saw. Ethiopia needed extreme help. Once he got home, Geldof went after the UK government and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher about the help Ethiopia needed. Geldof, a former punk rocker, was quickly becoming a champion for human aid. The success of Do They Know It's Christmas reverberated across the pond, where, in 1985, another song, We Are The World, also raised money for the famine. The American supergroup named USA for Africa featured superstars like Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, Billy Joel, Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, Cyndi Lauper, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, and basically anyone who's ever been to the Grammys. Written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, We Are the World sold over 20 million copies and raised $45 million 
or nearly $130 million in today's money. At the recording of We Are the World, a special guest was in attendance, Bob Geldof. But the recording took place in Hollywood, and he couldn't help but notice the excess that went along with the production, including high-end catered food. Geldof didn't like what he saw, but the star power gave him an idea. Why not combine all this talent together to keep raising money? The light bulb went off. What about a massive concert? But where do you even start? Along with his partner, Midge Ure, Geldof brought in one of the biggest promoters of the time, Harvey Goldsmith, who, according to Against All Odds, thought it was a ridiculous idea. Eventually, Geldof convinced him. In mid-April 1985, with the ambitious plan of putting together a massive concert in just three months, work began. First things first, where would it be held? It was quickly decided that one of the most iconic venues in the world, Wembley Stadium, would be perfect. But to fill the giant stadium meant needing big draws, and Geldof wanted every major musical act possible. There was already so much to consider just in the UK, but then Geldof threw out the idea of the event being held on two continents. One of the themes of this entire story is the relentless persistence of Bob Geldof. Where do you even start with the logistics of this thing? The plan was for a summer concert, but wouldn't many top artists already be booked and out on tour? If this thing was going to work, they needed talent and lots of it. Geldof and Goldsmith started approaching every artist you would have seen in the top 40 in 1985 and didn't want to take no for an answer. Several artists thought it was ridiculous. But Sting, Simple Minds, and Elton John got on board, even if they weren't necessarily 100% confirmed. Keep that in mind. As a supposed artist list grew, so did Geldof's imagination. Wembley Stadium can only hold so many people. How do you allow as many people as possible to watch this thing? Geldof came up with something that hadn't really ever been done before. An all-day broadcast between two countries live. This is 1985, and an endeavor like this would require satellite technology, which wasn't exactly effective and dependable yet. It's now the end of April, and Geldof met with a man that may be able to pull off this technical miracle, Mike Mitchell. Mitchell, a TV producer, had just produced one of the biggest global events of the time, the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Their plan was to create a, quote, global jukebox. The concert portion of Wembley would begin at noon, and then the U.S. portion would begin five hours later, with both events being beamed around the world. The event was quickly becoming a massive undertaking. American promoter Bill Graham would handle the American side of the event. Graham had helped promote events that exposed the world to artists like the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and Janis Joplin. A talented team was in place, 
but there still wasn't an American venue, or a full artist list, or broadcast details nailed down. And now, we're only about eight weeks out. If this thing was going to work, it had to be broadcast, and Geldof pretty much demanded that the BBC make it happen. It's now about six weeks out, and the BBC is on board. Actually, everyone at the BBC had to be on board whether they were prepared or not. Several BBC presenters would have to go from working on simple TV shows once or twice a week to hosting this 12-plus-hour live worldwide event. But the BBC wasn't doing this alone, as there were two countries involved. In the U.S., it was thought that broadcasting this event was technically impossible. Olympic producer Mike Mitchell explains that for the massive Olympic Games, they used two satellites and one location with one feed to distribute around the world. This charity concert that was rapidly approaching would require 16 satellites and eight locations all interacting together for 16 hours. And again, this is 1985. Mitchell explains that the technical equivalent of doing this today would be like broadcasting a concert from the moon. Eventually, ABC agreed to broadcast a three-hour special with the American portion based in Philadelphia. It's now about a month out from the show, and the event is finally announced to the public but they still don't have definitive commitments from the artists. How could they promote this thing with the uncertainty that there wouldn't be any true star power? At a press conference held in Wembley Stadium, Geldof started rattling off the who's who of artists scheduled to perform, even though there weren't any confirmations. Among some of the artists mentioned that day were Brian Adams, Bill Collins, David Bowie, The Cars, Eric Clapton, Dire Straits, and Duran Duran. Some of the bands listed off, like The Who, weren't even together anymore. When Geldof mentioned the classic group Queen, their manager called in saying he had no idea what the event even was, and not to mention the band. But there was one thing that was definite, the official name of the event. Live Aid. But the hype was growing. The event and the artists did sound monumental, and it sounded like every artist possible would be there. But at the same time, many thought it was a pipe dream and could never happen. Despite all the issues and communication problems and tension between the US and England, tickets quickly sold. They were almost out of time. The show had to go on, as they say. Would everyone show up? And when it came to the artists, who would show up? Would the extraordinarily complicated broadcast technology between two continents even work? Would there even be enough catering? As the morning of July 13, 1985 finally arrived, everyone involved with Live Aid took a gigantic deep breath. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. To secure artists, Geldof, shall we say, stretched the truth by telling certain performers that other notable ones would be at Live Aid in the hopes it would make them want to sign on. It was almost like peer pressure to appear. And why wouldn't you want to be on the same event as someone like Elton John or Mick Jagger, even if they weren't confirmed? But if you build Live Aid, they will come. Top artists and bands eventually committed and were even fighting to get on the venue and to get the best set times. Whatever approach Geldof used, it somehow worked out. And remember, this was a charity event for Africa it probably wasn't a good look not to be involved. The lineup for Live Aid was astonishing. Between the two countries, nearly 60 artists were scheduled, including Elton John, Dire Straits, David Bowie, U2, Duran Duran, The Who, Run DMC, Madonna, Mick Jagger, The Beach Boys, Eric Clapton, Sting, and even Queen agreed to perform. Wembley Stadium was the focal point of Live Aid. Inside the stadium were two giant screens that would also show the event in Philadelphia. Seems like a straightforward technology, but not exactly as we're learning. If you grew up in the 80s and were a wrestling fan, this may remind you of WrestleMania 2, another remarkable live technological undertaking. And that one took place just a year later. WrestleMania 2 would take place in three areas. Long Island, Chicago, and Los Angeles. The event began in Long Island with a live crowd while audiences in Chicago and LA watched on giant screens in their arena. When the event in New York finished, big screens came down as they watched the next hour held in Chicago. And Chicago did the same thing as the event finished up in LA. Vince McMahon has said that to pull this off today, would be a monumental challenge from a technical standpoint, let alone in 1986. Live Aid was facing the same issues. The event kicked off at 12 noon UK time, 7 a.m. in Philly. With Prince Charles and Princess Diana in attendance, Live Aid began. It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia. And around the world, it's time for Live Aid. 16 hours of live music in aid of famine relief in Africa. Wembley welcomes their Royal Highnesses, the Prince and Princess of Wales. After a short version of God Save the Queen, Status Quo was the first band to take the stage, followed by the Style Council, the Boomtown Rats and Geldof, and then Adam Ant. Wembley was packed with more than 70,000 people watching acts like Elvis Costello, Sting, Phil Collins, U2, and Dire Straits. Phil Collins pulled off something pretty extraordinary on this day, and we'll get back to that in a bit. In Philadelphia, nearly 90,000 people packed John F. Kennedy Stadium while millions at home watched on ABC and MTV. Here in Canada, the CBC picked up the feed. 
At about 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or 2.30 p.m. in London, the amazing American set began with the Four Tops, followed by Billy Ocean, Black Sabbath, Rick Springfield, Ario Speedwagon, Crosby, Stills & Nash, Judas Priest, the good old Canadian Brian Adams, and the Beach Boys. There was also a notable performance by Run DMC, who immortalized the moment in their 1986 song, My Adidas, with the verse, I stepped on stage at Live Aid, all the people gave and the poor got paid. The American side of Live Aid also leaned more into the popular celebrities of the time. Some of the notable appearances included Chevy Chase, Jack Nicholson, Joe Piscopo, Bette Midler, and Don Johnson. But London had Charles and Diana, and in 1985, you couldn't top that. In both locations, the incredible event continued on. The musical acts were only playing for about 20 or so minutes, and this kept a good flow going for both shows. But at 6.41 p.m. UK time, the concert was about to go in a historic direction. Going into the 80s, the band Queen had kind of fallen off a little. It seemed like they had lost some of their steam and didn't necessarily feel like the powerhouse band of yesteryear. That would soon change, as Queen would end up giving one of the most defining performances in the history of rock music. From the moment he took the stage, and for every second of the 21-minute long set, Freddie Mercury had Wembley Stadium in the palm of his hand. The set started with Bohemian Rhapsody before moving into Radio Gaga, Hammer to Fall, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, We Will Rock You before finishing with We Are the Champions. In this short set, Freddie Mercury had re-established Queen as one of the defining bands of all time and established himself as possibly the greatest frontman ever. If you've watched this performance like 200 times as I have, it's astonishing every time. And the image of Freddie Mercury commanding Wembley Stadium is one of the defining images of the 1980s. The crowd at Wembley was so captivated by Mercury and so in sync with his movements and the music that you can actually see the speed of sound through the audience. The original Wembley Stadium was about 115 yards long and the sound took a fraction of a second to reach the back of the stadium, moving at about 340 meters per second. So you can see claps and fists in the air ripple through the crowd. When I think of Live Aid, I think of Queen, and specifically Freddie Mercury. Queen's performance is synonymous with the event itself. It's like they're one and the same. Even though there were dozens and dozens of some of the greatest musical acts in history, this is an event embodied by Freddie Mercury and Queen. Many music magazines, journalists, and artists consider their performance the greatest musical set in rock history. In 2005, a BBC story reported that a survey of 60 industry experts proclaimed it the world's greatest live rock gig ahead of Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock and the famous Sex Pistols' 1976 concert in Manchester. Queen 
the band whose manager didn't even want them to have anything to do with the event stole the show and created some of the most iconic imagery of the 20th century. But there was still a lot more music to go. David Bowie had the tough task of following Queen's iconic performance, but of course, held his own and then some. The Who and Elton John went on in England while acts like The Pretenders, Santana, Madonna, Tom Petty, The Cars, and Neil Young performed in Philly. I mentioned Phil Collins earlier, and the singer-drummer pulled off one of the more extraordinary performances of the entire event. After performing in London at just after 3 p.m. UK time or 10 a.m. in Philly, Collins took a helicopter to Heathrow Airport and boarded the Concorde, getting to the U.S. in just three hours. By going backward in time zones, he was able to perform in Philly. Thanks to the speed of the supersonic Concorde, Phil Collins was able to appear at the same event in two different countries on the same day. It's easy to forget, but Live Aid in Philly also featured the Led Zeppelin reunion, with Collins filling in on drums for the late, great John Bonham. The UK portion of Live Aid finished up with a performance by Freddie Mercury and Brian May and closed with what was considered the piece de resistance Paul McCartney. McCartney was considered the crown jewel of the entire event, and it's notable because this was his first public performance since the death of John Lennon in 1980. McCartney closed the show with Let It Be before Band-Aid performed Do They Know It's Christmas. The American side of Live Aid finished with an astonishing lineup featuring sets from Patti LaBelle, Paul and Oates, Mick Jagger, and then a set by Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Ronnie Wood. And then it all came together with the performance of We Are the World by USA for Africa. It can be easy to forget that this was more than just an extraordinary concert event, but was technically a telethon. The point of all of this, after all, was to raise money for Africa, and viewers could phone in to 1-800-LIVE-AID to donate money. And the rush to donate money ended up stifling that entire system. A July 16th New York Times article from 1985 states that all the phone lines were overloaded and remained jammed for most of the day. There were over 1,100 circuits staffed by more than 900 people, and the entire system and volunteers were, quote, getting more traffic than they can handle. Other countries had their own phone numbers for donations, and when all was said and done, more than $140 million had been raised. In today's money, that's around $400 million. Despite all the logistical nightmares, both technical and administratively, the event was a phenomenal success. Various reports state that Live Aid reached a global audience of anywhere from 1.5 to 1.9 billion television viewers. Regardless of what the exact numbers were, they were stratospheric. Even on that low end, in 1985, this was about a third of the planet. To create such a worldwide reach, Live Aid sold the broadcast rights to an astonishing 150 countries. 
And then at least 20 other countries held their own telethons while the event was happening. Live Aid truly was a global event. Even though it ran for 16 or so hours, it didn't seem to drag. The New York Times Review stated that because each artist only performed a few songs, it was easily digestible and, quote, there was enough genuine excitement to keep the proceedings from going stale, unquote. Music can change the world, and that's precisely what happened in June 1985 with one of the most extraordinary events and undertakings in modern history. Live Aid wasn't without its criticisms, though. The event was questioned about not having enough black artists on the UK bill. Some were still cynical if the artists wanted attention for Africa or just for themselves. Could rock stars really be charitable? And then the charitable work for Ethiopia received its fair share of criticism, with questioning into the use of the money that was raised. But Band-Aid, USA for Africa, and Live Aid did make the public much more aware of the problems and starvation in Ethiopia. No matter what you may have thought of Bob Geldof at the time, he did make a huge difference and helped to bring worldwide attention to what was happening in Africa. Geldof would also turn into Sir Bob Geldof, as in 1986, he was knighted by the Queen of England. Is Live Aid the Woodstock of the 80s? Maybe, but each event is unique in its own way. For many who attended Live Aid, it did give them some memories of Woodstock, which had only taken place just 16 years earlier, which is kind of crazy to think about. It's hard to think of those events as that close together. That's the same time difference between when this episode is being recorded and when the movie Superbad came out. But Live Aid itself created its own distinct identity. The imagery, music, and staggering logistics to pull off such a global spectacle gave Live Aid its own legacy. It's been nearly 40 years since that day back in 1985, and Live Aid remains one of the most notable moments of the entire 1980s. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. If you like music, I have some previous episodes about the history of MTV, along with episodes of the top albums from 1982 and one about 1983 that focus on the fact that these classic albums are now 40 years old. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you're in a position to help support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com, which is the platform to get bonus audio content, including the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. And speaking of that, the most recent review to go up there is not a Vincent pick, but a classic Gene pick, Weekend at Bernie's. So if you want to learn more, just head on over to Patreon.com slash 80s, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. Music